0: Frank Ling and I'm Charles Lee and you're listening to the Grok Science Show that's right it's a weekly look at the world of science technology and the effects on our daily lives coming up on today's program Lori Green will join us to discuss drag queens and beauty queens so stay tuned for all of this plus the Grokatron 5000 and our world famous question a week coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show The Rock's Science Show. Well, probably heard of the Miss America pageant, but what about the Missed America pageant? Well, in the new book, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens, it prevents a vivid ethnography of Missed America pageant and the gay neighborhood from which it emerged in the early 1990s. The author is Professor Lori Green. Professor Green is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stockton University in New Jersey. She's the founder and chair of the LGBTQ Youth Safe Space Initiative at Stockton University and is an advocate for the local LGBTQ community. Her new book, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens, Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's Missed America Pageant, the neighborhood from which it emerged. What got you interested in the topic and why you decided to put the book together?
1: Well, I'm an anthropologist. I study embodiment, which means how people experience the world in their bodies and what they do with them to have those experiences. And I happen to live in Atlantic City, and so I'm familiar forever with the more famous Miss America pageant that I'm sure everybody is. So knew about the Miss America pageant. I was actually had many friends that were in the pageant. And it dawned on me that this was an opportunity to really look at the similarities and differences between a drag pageant and a pageant that was basically an homage to the Miss America pageant. That's really how it all started, uh, just talking to people about it. and If people don't know too, the Miss America pageant is a volunteer pageant. So when it was in Atlantic City, the people that ran the pageant were all from Atlantic City and the surrounding areas, they're all volunteers. So it's sort of like families would go generations working for the pageant, even though a lot of people think it's sort of yesterday. When it was still in Atlantic City, which isn't anymore, as you probably know, it was very near and dear to Atlantic City. That was the big event of the year. So the Miss America pageant wasn't the only celebration surrounding Miss America, but it was the most obvious one.
0: I'm curious about the history of the Miss America pageant and evolved over the years.
1: Well, how it was created and how it evolved is sort of a contested story, (laughs) but it started around 1991 or 1992. It started very, very locally with all local queens in the upstairs of a very famous bar called Studio Six. Essentially, first started, as many things did at that time, to try to raise money for people who were suffering from and dying from AIDS. So it was meant to be an activist event, a fundraising event that brought the whole community together, that supported everybody in the community. And Atlantic City, although it's a city, is a very small place. So everybody knows each other. So it wasn't just the gay community that was coming to this pageant, even though they were running it. It was everybody that would come to this pageant. And all the jokes were very local in the beginning. Sort of had to be there, know people to understand how funny it was. It was literally sold out the day the tickets went on sale every time. In fact, there was a balcony it was on outside, and at one point, the police came and said we had to get people off the balcony because there were too many people on it. I mean, it was it was always packed. And then eventually the pageant stopped because Miss America, the pageant, and it used to occur the day after the Miss America pageant. The Miss America pageant moved to Las Vegas and they just stopped doing the pageant because they, they were so tied to it, you know, they were so enjoined to it. And then they decided before the pageant came back, right before, that they were going to reinvent it and make it a major pageant, a big pageant, not local. And they got uh, you know famous celebrities to basically be the emcees for the pageant and open it up to the whole country and had it at Boardwalk Hall, which is where the Miss America pageant is generally contested. And once Miss American came back, they moved it to larger venues, and it eventually ended up in the ballroom at the Borgata, and then, which is a casino, as well as at the Hard Rock Casino. So these giant venues that were now going to be live-streamed or, or televised. So the pageant changed very much over the years. It became something that was less connected directly to the community and more connected to the national drag scene. But that's the way it started out. And the connections between Miss America and Miss America are so strong. For example, even though the pageant contestants in Miss America change every year, the people working behind the scenes were always the same. So these might be the choreographers, the makeup people, the people that designed the the clothing or or helped them with the clothing and their hair. And almost all of these people that worked behind the scenes with the pageant, their escorts, things like that, were all gay men. And so they would come down. There's a street in Atlantic City. that used to be very famous, this three-block area called New York Avenue was the avenue it was centered around. And within that, there were about 15 or 20 clubs, rooming houses, resorts, and they were all gay rooming houses, resorts, clubs in this very small area. So they would come down when they weren't working and just hang out on New York Avenue. So the same people every year. So the gay community in Atlantic City was very familiar with the entire pageant. and In fact, it is their Holy Grail, the Miss America pageant. I mean, it, it's sort of like our local equivalent of Disney in Atlantic City. So that's how it all started. That's an essence of the connection. Again, I already mentioned that the locals in our community were also all the volunteers. All the families might be escorts. They might drive the cars in the parade. They might raise money. They might do various jobs, and this would would happen generation to generation. So, There's a very strong connection within the community between the Miss America pageant and the Miss America pageant. And that although some people might see it as a spook, it really was more of an homage to the pageant because the gay community and the queens in particular felt very connected with the contestants. They felt that they were just like them. They were up there from their perspective doing all these things in heels and a bathing suit. To them, it was more of a campy exercise than a pageant. They thought, well, no one would do this, you know, walk around in a bathing suit and heels. No one would play red solo cups for a talent unless they really had a good camp sense of humor. So this was the essence of the interaction between the gay community and the drag community in particular and the Miss America pageant.
0: The stylings of pageantry that drove a lot of what it was,
1: yeah, absolutely. see it as a spoof if you're reviewing it. But to them it was came from absolute love. But the Miss America pageant didn't feel the same way. In fact, they banned all the contestants from attending the Miss America pageant the next day. And that was they that ban wasn't broken until Kate Schindel, the year she won. She's actually from near Atlantic City. Her family was very involved in the Miss America Pageant as volunteers. Although she contested from a different state, her platform was HIV AIDS. And so she was the first one to break the ban. She just said, I'm going. And she went the next day. She said, these are my people. These are my friends. She's a a theater person. She eventually went on to have a great career in theater. And she broke the ban. And ever since then, Miss America's had to deal with the pageant, with the Miss America pageant and with the accolades of the gay community since then. Another interesting story, probably the the most interesting story I came across out of all of this was the origins of the Show Us Your Shoes, Shoes Parade. So if you're not familiar with the pageant, the night before the pageant, the evening before, there's always the Miss America Parade. And traditionally, the contestants would ride down the street in convertibles in their finest evening gowns or evening wear with white gloves. And they would wave, you know, the one hand Miss America wave to the crowds that lined the boardwalk in Atlantic City, in which the parade ended at Boardwalk Hall, where the pageant would be contested. And it was the most popular event of the pageant, this parade. And when they passed New York Avenue, along New York Avenue on the boardwalk, there were these two high rise rooming houses and hotels and all the drag queens and lived in them. And they would sit down on the balconies and, and cheer the girls as they went by. And at one point, they looked down into the cars and they said, oh, my God, they're not wearing any shoes. And they started this chant, show us your shoes, to taunt them, to read them, basically, in gay linguistic terminology. right? And the pageant, Miss America, pageant said, don't, you're going to go to New York Avenue. Don't listen. They're going to try to unsettle you. And then it, it, this blew up. I mean, there were signs. There were T-shirts. There were watches. There were hats. There were... Everything you could think of that said show us your shoes on it, that people would just go crazy with this on New York Avenue. At one point, somebody raised their foot and everybody went nuts. And the next year, the Miss America pageant trademarked the term show us your shoes and changed the parade to the show us your shoes parade, which became this campy version of the parade where all the contestants now dressed up in campy costumes that were funny the whimsical costumes about that represented their state and they decorate their shoes, very outlandish decoration of their shoes. And they held up one leg the whole time out of their convertible as they rode down the boardwalk. But that's not how the Miss America pageant tells the story of the origin of the parade. They say it's this family friendly event where the girls get to show off their creativity. There's no mention of <laughs> the gay origins or the drag origins of this parade. So there's always this sort of tension between the Miss America pageant that sort of thought of itself very seriously and the Miss America pageant that didn't think of itself seriously, you know, that thought of itself or what it was. So much so that they started, you know, that became the next chant, which was, you know, they take themselves too seriously. You know, they think they're better than they are. But there's lots of instances of gay influence on the Miss America pageant besides this one. But this one is probably the most interesting example of what we call queering the pageant.
0: Just because of the participant, it's viewed differently and held to a different standard.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in Atlantic City, the Miss America pageant is beloved as much as the Miss America pageant is. And so when Miss America left for Vegas and then came back to Atlantic City, they were happy. But now that they've left again, they want nothing to do with them. You know, they feel very betrayed by by the pageant. And Miss America pageant, as you say, the drag pageant, has sort of taken over the accolades and the love that the Miss America pageant used to enjoy when they were in Atlantic City. There's always been tension. They even used to have, at one point, the drag pageant wanted to march in the parade. And there's many organizations that march in the parade and the Miss America organization refused to let them. And the last time they refused to let them, they, they were going to let them and they were excited and they built a float. And then they said it was against the rules because no one else could wear a crown in the parade except the Miss America winner from the year before. So that was their excuse for not letting the drag queens on the float parade from the Miss America pageant. But we can imagine it was more than that. There was a bit of homophobia in there, or maybe it was simply that the drag pageant exposed the Miss America pageant for what it was, a pageant, a beauty contest, not a scholarship competition, which they were trying to reframe themselves as And I think that the harder they tried to make themselves a scholarship competition, and even though it made sort of little sense and was anachronistic in that light, the more it felt like they were a beauty pageant. They weren't a scholarship, but they protested too much about this. And so it's a complicated history, but very intertwined, and I think one that very few people know about. And the influence, again, that Miss America had on Miss America was immense
0: the two perhaps polarized each other in some ways that uh, the mainstreaming of drag culture maybe led to this more conservatism of the Miss America pageant?
1: Oh, I'm certain it probably had an influence. One of the interesting things, for example, the first thing they did when Miss the Miss America pageant reformed itself to be deal with all the criticisms of it being a beauty pageant was they decided they were going to take away the runway. They were going to take away the theme song that used to be sung, right? Here She Comes, Miss America, and they were going to take away the swimsuit competition and make the evening gown competition something that the contestants could decide what they were going to wear. They didn't. They could wear anything they were comfortable in. And so, Mr. America started advertising themselves as we're the actual pageant, the ones that still have the runway, the swimsuit, and the evening gown. That was their use it for advertisement to say what where's all the pageantry? You sucked all the pageantry out of the pageant. Why would anyone want to watch it now? What are we going to watch people read their papers, their research papers? So they did certainly highlight the fact that they weren't what they were saying they were and that they were taking themselves too seriously. And, And a reaction to that might have been this, you know, increase in conservatism. I don't doubt that. And you can really see that from what's going on today. This attack on drag, which isn't really about drag. It's more about the visibility of the performance art form, which is what it is, on the one hand, and the fact that it maybe does point out some of the inconsistencies in heterosexual culture, some of the ironies in heterosexual culture in ways that they don't like. And I think certainly another aspect of it is that it is a way to, in a backhanded way, discriminate against transgender Individuals in the gay community, because they might be the ones that are out there dressing in a gender in a non-performative way, right, in in just their everyday lives, that they were not assigned at birth, and this is really what's being attacked in a lot of these laws that we see, for example, in Tennessee and other places where drag in public or being dressed and in the clothing of of a gender that you are not have don't have the physical anatomy for, is is becoming illegal, basically. But we know drag's been around for a long time. We know it's extremely popular in popular culture now since Rupaul and and his impact. And so it, it makes no so sense to start critiquing it now as something that's dangerous, right? It's, so there must be I think you're right. there must be something else going on there and i'm I'm certain it has to do with the light that drag performance and and camp, which is a critique of heteronormative culture has in the in in our culture today, especially with conservatism that we see in our political system and the way that maybe gestures are made in order to appeal to that very conservative base, whether you believe this is a problem or not.
0: Drag is part of LGBTQIA community, but it does have this male focus. So is it totally inclusive of everybody in the community or is it male dominant within that part of the
1: community? Well, male dominance is male dominance. It's no different in homosexual culture, you know, in, in LGBT culture, it's no different. I mean, so, you know, there are drag kings and those are women that perform dressed up as men, but they certainly do not have the popularity that drag queens have. When drag queens and drag kings perform together, usually the, the drag queens dominate just, you know, they, I always say they might be w- dressed as women, but they're still men. That power dynamic is still there. Certainly are women in the LGBT community who do not like drag, but there are men also. I think it used to be the case. I, I don't think it's the case anymore. I think that, that drag is seen as sometimes people's first experience in the LGBT community who aren't from it. I like to say that, that drag queens are on the front lines of gender. You know, they're the ones that are unapologetically gay, and I think that's why they, they come under attack, because they, they present themselves, they're not hiding. You know, they present themselves in their bodies as unapologetically gay. And that's just a brave thing, but it's also inherently a political thing to do. And I think that everybody in the LGBT community appreciates that if they like drag. I don't think it's so much that women in the LGBT community don't relate to that anymore. I think I think that that may have been true in the 60s and the 70s, and maybe before that, but, but not now. I don't believe that's still the case.
0: Drag, which in many ways was sort of pushing these boundaries and breaking boundaries, it's become to the point where it's now so mainstream that it's just part of the culture and that the statements that it was once making is not impactful.
1: That, there are drag queens that will complain about that. And this speaks to, you know, the influence of RuPaul, which is immense. And he, he is almost single-handedly popularized drag, almost, I say. And I do think that, yeah, it's always, when something becomes popularized, it's always at risk of having its power denuded. That's always the case. It's certainly, for a while, I think this is changing back again, homogenized drag in a way it never was. And I, I do believe that that took away a lot of its power, you know, where you had to, you know, realness became a thing instead of campiness sort of was diminished. And you had to spend a lot of money now to be a drag queen. I mean, you had to look real. You had to spend a lot of money on costumes. And that was never the case in the beginning. It was much more focused on camp, much more focused on throwing yourself together, looking ridiculous, not trying to actually look like a woman. No, The, the idea behind drag is, You're not supposed to think they're a woman. You know, everybody in the audience is in on the joke. And that is where the power of drag comes from. They're not female impersonators. That's something different, right? They're not cross-dressers. That's very different. And, you know, they're not trans women. They're not trying to be real. They're not even ballroom people who are trying to be real. The POC community and the LGBT community they are drag queens. You know, as one of my queens said once, nobody thinks I'm a woman in heels with my wig on. I'm seven foot two inches tall and I have makeup on that nobody would wear and I have three sets of eyelashes. You know, that it wasn't the point to imitate a woman. The exaggeration was the point. And the exaggeration was to point out so many of the ironies, the the hurts, ridiculous nature of prejudice, the ridiculous nature of gender norms and the limitations, by the way, of masculinity, not so much femininity. So if drag is a critique of anything specific, it's a critique of masculinity and it's limited, very limited expression as compared to femininity, which has a wide range of expression. And you can even see that they would say, just look at the clothes. You've got 10 different kinds of shoes you can wear. You can change your hair every day. You can do all, all these different dresses. You can dress in jeans, you can dress up and they're like, look what we have to wear. So, And they saw that in terms of an embodied sense of emblematic of the limitations of masculinity. And drag queens and jag kings are not polar opposites either. They're a bit different, and that might be a whole other discussion, but they're not polar opposites. They're, they're a bit different.
0: Well, I, I mean, it really is such a fascinating book. And fortunately, we're running out of time. I'm just curious, maybe some final words that readers are going to take away from the book and what kind of impact I hope it has on the field of gender studies and popular culture.
1: Well, I think one thing that I'd love them to take away is the importance of place. I mean, it's one of those, I think this book is one thing it really is, is a study of a place and the people that live there. And being LGBTQ in Atlantic City is different than being LGBTQ somewhere else. It's a different experience. And I think that's something that's been left out of a lot of the literature that's been written about drag in particular and maybe the idea of, you know, intersectionality in general, you know, that it's not just race, class and gender. There's other variables that really make people think differently and their li- and their experiences in their bodies and in their lives different. So I hope that's one thing. And I think the other thing is that it's amazing to me. You know, people are different. Like all drag queens aren't the same. They have very different experiences. Right. So we tend to simplify and generalize our questions of people and their lives. But it's much more complex than that. And I, and I hope that that's one thing people get out of it by reading the book. And I also hope they feel like they're there when they read the book, that it's, it's not the anthropology or ethnography, if you don't know, isn't a dry synopsis. But um, we try to give you the experience of actually being there at these events and understanding the people as, as you lived here. So I hope they get that out of it as well.
0: We were talking with Dr. Lori Green. She has authored the new book, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens, Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.